I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Fifth in Mission. The city and county of San Francisco harmed its Black residents. For decades, its policies and practices cheated Black people out of economic advancement, social mobility, generational wealth, educational attainment, and property ownership. Those are some of the findings of a report exploring the case for reparations in San Francisco. At a Board of Supervisors hearing last week, speakers made it clear that these harms affect people who are alive and here today. My name is Waynette Runnels. I was born at Mount Zion. I would say the year, but just let let me put it this way. My birth certificate says Negro. My husband and I have lived in the Lakeview OMI for the last 50 years. When we were looking for a home, we were only allowed to look on one side of Ocean Avenue, not the other side, because of their doctrine and covenants didn't allow black people on that side of Ocean. The African-American Reparations Advisory Committee started meeting in 2021 to trace the roots of deep racial inequality in San Francisco and figure out how the city could repair the damage. One of the worst examples of harm as captured in the report was a phase of what was called urban renewal. In the post-war era, many cities, including San Francisco, forced people of color out of their homes, demolishing whole neighborhoods. They described this as clearing blight, but the racist motivations were clear. City officials at the time were explicit about wanting to reduce the number of black people in these areas. The report shows those who were displaced were never really made whole. The fallout lingers today. When 12,000 black households were destroyed through the guise of urban renewal, it cripples the generational wealth available to my community in this beautiful city. The reparations proposal presented to the supervisors makes more than 150 recommendations from creating specific spaces and opportunities for Black-owned businesses, to improving schools and covering educational costs for Black students, to creating new financial institutions to serve Black residents. One recommendation is that the city issue a formal apology. And yes, they suggest a lump-sum payment of $5 million and other financial reparations to qualifying individuals. Committee Vice Chair Tanish Hollins closed her presentation to the supervisors by addressing them directly. Some of you lived through and experienced them. You saw your black neighbors and black businesses in your districts, friends, people that you've grown up with displaced. You continue to see the harm perpetuate as you work in your current seats to try to close the racial wealth gap and deal with education and deal with violence. We see you every day doing your best. But this is a moment where we're calling on you to do more than your best. Did they rise to the occasion? I asked Eric McDonnell, chair of the Reparations Committee, for his reaction. Later on in the show, I'll also get an analysis of what could happen next from columnist Justin Phillips. First, here's Eric McDonnell. What I expected of what they shared was that they would declare their overall kind of commitment to or acknowledgement of the importance of this work, the acknowledgement of the role that the city has in fact played. I would say they were more specific in last night's hearing than they were in the hearing that we did back in March in terms of, in particular, naming the culpability of the city. And certainly appreciate hearing that openness and named specifically by several of them around public apology, which is one of the recommendations that we have put forward. So overall felt good, again, that there was that acknowledgement, even 
though I knew this was not, this was a discussion only item, not an action item and did not anticipate or expect that there would be any votes. I did hope to hear more of them speaking specifically to recommendations based upon their review of the overall report and plan where they saw themselves leaning into leading, owning, contributing to the implementation of specific recommendations. So, I mean, for me, success is one part having galvanized community around this, which I think we've done well. Another part having raised a level of both consciousness and resulting discourse that the city has not had before in my lifetime. One of the elements here is that the, it's not clear whether the mayor will, in fact, spend the money to open the Office of Reparations, which would be tasked with implementing some of these recommendations. What are your thoughts and feelings on that uncertainty? I guess two parts to, to that and uh, for me. One is it's just puzzling to me. I'm not a politician, don't have aspirations in that direction. However. From where I sit, I see efforts in terms of supporting, investing in, enabling all those things around reparations as an asset from a political perspective. I see it as something you'd want to be aligned with and leverage. You know, she's running for re-election, and that's a part of the equation. Maybe it's why I'm not a politician. I see it as an asset, and it doesn't seem to me she does. And I don't know if she's being quoted accurately or not, but you know, stating that she believes reparations should be handled at a federal level. That is disappointing that that is the case. It is, I would say, frankly, a misunderstanding of what this task force, this committee is tasked with. This is focused on, appropriately so, the harms perpetrated by the city and county of San Francisco. Therefore, there is not another jurisdiction, state or federal, that would be responsible for the repair of those harms. Now, is there a federal conversation to be had? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a separate and distinct discussion, path, process. But to expect that the conversation we're having here should be held at a federal level, I would suggest candidly and frankly is a misunderstanding of what we're grappling with, and where it should be appropriately adjudicated, so to speak. One of the things that I keep seeing in the discourse around reparations is that those harms that were perpetrated by the city, by the state, by the federal government, that those are in the past. And one of the things that you've spoken to before and that we heard and saw on clear display yesterday was is that... The, the real people are harmed today. Real people are experiencing this or remember this today. They're, they're still around. We are seeing the harms. Can you talk about some of the ways that you've seen that over the course of your work on the committee, maybe yesterday, and, and what that really means in the modern context? What we heard kind of pretty consistently in public comment was this repeated narrative of current harms. I can't tell you how many people showed up during our meetings on a monthly basis. They were not talking about harms of the 40s or 50s or 60s. They were talking about the harms of substandard housing today 
and wondering what we were going to do about it. They were talking about their inability, right, to access capital. And by their experience, that inability being driven and informed by their being Black. We heard consistently about the failed educational system in terms of, again, whether it's disproportionate levels of suspensions of Black students, disproportionate labeling of Black students needing or or relegated, if you will, to special education, subjected to subscriptions of meds based upon those. So also, and so this is current. This Again, this is not historical. This is not previous to our lifetimes. This is right now. Having said that, I do think it important to not also decouple it all because much of what exists today in the way of, because ultimately we're talking about our policies and practices. These are policies and practices that many of which got codified, yes, years ago, some of them decades ago, and have become a part and institutionalized across the city right? Inside our school district, inside the health department, inside the mayor's office of housing, and the list goes on. And so there is a through line that this is both about the historical experiences that have been perpetuated and continued. And therefore, we're not not having a historical conversation. We're having a very current conversation that has historical origins. And yet, In the media coverage, anytime this topic comes up, all we see is payments. We're like San Francisco is considering paying its Black residents X amount of money. What is your reaction to seeing those headlines? Quite frankly, it's infuriating for at least two reasons. One is we as a committee have not centered and made paramount to this whole effort the financial repair. We have said financial repair is very, very important. Financial repair should be a part of any efforts that are declared to be reparative because part of what has been you know, interrupted, disrupted, and in many cases, just outright stolen were the pathways that Black families were either not allowed to get on or were pulled off of as they got on were the pathways to financial stability and ultimately building generational wealth. That's money. That's that's financial resources, right? And so if there's going to be repair, we believe it absolutely should include financial repair. Having said that, if there were only financial repair and not the addressing of all of the uh, additional and other ways in which the systems, practices, policies have, again, disenfranchised Black families, then we would not be really repairing and making whole, right? And that's why there are 150 plus recommendations and not just one recommendation, right? And so, Are financial repairs important? Absolutely. Should it be centered as the headline in almost, you know, many, I don't want to exaggerate it, but many of the articles that are covering this issue, that's infuriating. It comes across as if that's what we're proposing as being central, and we are not. Yeah. So what specific recommendations did get some airtime last night at at this conversation that you wish you would see more coverage of? Frankly, what I wish got more airtime was the full complement of the report. We speak to in the report. I'd love to have the journalist say, 
this is really important. These, the harms are, are appropriately or adequately articulated and codified. The recommendations have merit in terms of their alignment with and the repair of said harms. Yes, there is the remaining open question of how much of this the city has capacity to do. That's the more well-rounded stories I'd like to, to see run. Eric, thank you for your time. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having me. That was African-American Reparations Advisory Committee Chair Eric McDonald reflecting on the Board of Supervisors hearing last Tuesday, where supervisors were presented with the committee's recommendations and heard the public react. What happens next on reparations? I'll talk about that with Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips after a break. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Last week, Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips tuned into the hearing where the Reparations Committee was presenting their findings and where members of the public were chiming in as well. He's here to share his takeaways from the discussion. Justin, let's start with this. What was really on the agenda here? I saw some confusion in online commentary after this hearing where it seemed some people might have been expecting a vote or a decision of some kind, which was not planned for this hearing. This wasn't about making legislation. What was the purpose of the meeting? And in your opinion, what happened? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This was more like little more than a listening session. And I think it was just to have a public space where the finalized report was openly presented to the public, also for people to come and share their final thoughts, like from you know residents in the area who've been tracking this, and also a chance for the supervisors to, I think, show their commitment that they had a couple of months ago when they were talking about the draft plan. And what I took away from the meeting is that, you know, six months, they haven't wavered. Like they're still consistent and vocal about their support for the, you know, for what's a very, very bold reparations plan. The supervisors have been and continue to be supportive of this proposed plan, like you said, but Mayor Breed has been and continues to be lukewarm about it. (laughs) I talked to the reparations committee chair, Eric McDonald. He says he expects the supervisors will do what they can within their own power, in their own offices to advance certain recommendations. How far do you see San Francisco actually getting on this issue in, say, the next 10 years? I would like to be hopeful and think that we're going to make a lot of progress. But I also know San Francisco politics, and it is a machine that can grind a movement down until it's absolute dust. I think what will decide how far we get in this is whether supervisors who, you know, during the meeting said that they're championing various aspects of the proposal on their own. It'll have to be whether supervisors decide if they want to be a part of the movement or if they want to see it through to its end. And I think if that's the case, if they have that desire, they might move quickly on low-hanging fruit things and the items that they casually mentioned during the meeting that they're working on that kind of run parallel or carry the same spirit as some of the items in the uh, reparations plan. So I think it's a lot on what the supervisors want to be remembered for in this work. 
And also, you know, the same thing could be said for the mayor. You mentioned some items that seem like low-hanging fruit for the supervisors to go after to start with. What could they be trying to accomplish right now? Yeah, I mean, during the meeting, a couple of supervisors, including uh, Aaron Peskin, mentioned supporting Black entrepreneurs. You know, in, in the reparations plan, it talks about like investing in entrepreneurs and Black-owned businesses. And Peskin talked about getting these Black entrepreneurs into city-owned properties. I think that is very achievable. Also, they mentioned, you know, getting the Fillmore Heritage Center operational. This has been an ongoing issue for the city. And if they get that functioning, that could be pretty significant. It means a lot to the Black community in San Francisco. I also think, you know, I wrote recently about the reparations plan calling for an HBCU in downtown San Francisco. And I think that should be considered a low-hanging fruit thing, even though we know it won't happen overnight. But I would consider it low-hanging fruit because the mayor has also talked about having a uh, a college in the downtown area or a college presence in the downtown area. So, you know, why not make that an HBCU? Like, it seems like the plans run parallel. It would make sense. You have the mayor who has, you know, been noncommittal about reparations say that she wants a college there. I think it just makes sense. One thing we really saw at this hearing and that we've seen in your coverage and in the Chronicle's past coverage on conversations about reparations, we see that people are absolutely still affected by the racist harms that are outlined in the reparations proposal. This stuff is not in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I talked with Eric about that, but maybe you could speak to kind of the urgency of San Francisco taking action on this and addressing this now. When I first came, you know, to work for the Chronicle now seven years ago, I remember just like my parents came to visit and we were hanging out in um, like around Union Square. And, you know, I remember one of the things that they brought up was just the amount of unhoused people. And it was concerning for them, but also the amount of people who looked like family members, you know, like, look like my dad, you know, look like my dad's brother or a cousin of mine or, and that's, ext- that's really, really tough. It's really, really tough to see. It shows you the systemic problems that, you know, still exist in San Francisco. And it shows you that what we talk about in the past is still really alive in the world today. It is a very specific Black pain when you see this kind of plight. I think that's like the best the best way that um that I can put it. And for the people who are like, "Oh, I I don't, you know, support reparations, like that was, you know, slavery was so long ago." These are usually people who haven't read the plans that are by the San Francisco committee or, you know, the report by the state task force. They connect the dots between, you know, centuries ago and the plight that you see today. And I would just encourage them to read. Just take a couple of minutes, look through it, and it'll shift your perspective. Related to that, one of the things that I know infuriated Eric is that the coverage of this hearing and other conversations about reparations have fixated on money, on cash payments. We hear the number five million thrown around a lot. We see all these headlines about San Francisco considering, you know, paying its black residents. You've written recently about the case for 
cash payment as part of the reparations proposal and that it is important. When is it good? When should we be talking about that aspect of the reparations proposal? And when should we be focusing on other issues? Honestly, it sucks that we have to think about that as a choice because we know how divisive the topic is. And whenever you talk about like giving Black people money, it has folks up in arms. Like this idea of Black autonomy terrifies some people. And I think like from the very beginning, we should be able to talk about money. And I think when it comes to the $5 million, what people should focus on instead of being like, oh my God, they're going to take $5 million from our community, you know, for each individual person, that number should spark a conversation about why is it so large? Why is the committee's projection $5 million for each person? If we're being realistic, the odds that San Francisco is going to cut a check for $5 million for each individual person is so slim. But it is important for there to be cash compensation, in my opinion, because that is one of the tools in reparations that has an immediate impact on a community. Like you're immediately giving them a leg up, giving them better standing in the economy locally. It could get them, you know, out of debt in certain certain instances. Like we don't know how much the, the payments would be, but cash injections are an immediate healing mechanism when it comes to reparations. We're we're taking the value of things that were lost. We're taking the, you know, economic mobility over time that was stripped away, economic power that was stripped away. And that includes like, you know, access to housing, access to education, job discrimination. And we're stacking this decades upon decades upon decades where we have documented proof of these harms. You add all of that together, the people who experience that, that's why the number is so high. Like it's, it is a lot of pain that went unaddressed for a very long time. People, especially those who are opposed to reparations are always pretty quick to point out that the city is facing budget shortfalls now. Does that make reparations any less urgent? Is that a clear argument against making these investments right now? I think it's a fair concern. Like, it's fair to wonder where the money is going to come from for some of these initiatives. You know, when it comes to the reparations committee, like, their thinking has always been, you know, research the harms and document them. And you have to remember, like, everybody on this committee is someone who's either lived through or whose family experienced these harms. So it shouldn't be on the people who are harmed to tell the institutions that harm them where to get the money. Those institutions should have to figure that out. The city, the county is going to have things to figure out. We don't know how it'll work, but I think what they've been presented with has to be addressed. And you just kind of expect these institutions to figure it out because they have to. Great. Justin, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Justin Phillips is an opinion columnist. Read his work at sfchronicle.com. Thanks to Sarah Feldberg for editing this episode, Gary Baca for mixing the audio, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>